Hey, welcome everybody. It's Sen Fong Lim here for Meeple Syrup Show. We are live and direct from London, Ontario, Canada, and somewhere else that we can't maybe mention today, uh, but not France. <laughs> not France. Um, if you're looking for Dylan, he's not in France. But also, Daryl's not here. Daryl uh, is in Las Vegas for the Gamma Convention that's going on right now, where the vast majority of the industry movers and shakers are for the week, talking about games and making games and things like that. So today we thought we'd get a little bit deeper in terms of, well, philosophy, psychology, all that kind of stuff, and talk about what is known in video game design as humane design. And so um, just going to pass this one over to Jesse right now. Jesse, can you just quickly give us a you know, working definition uh, that we're going to use for the show in terms of what humane design is? So I, I think the basic idea is um, designing in a way where you're thinking of your customers or players as humans with rich lives that reach beyond your game that um, you're trying to enrich but not necessarily negatively interfere in. Um, so that is thinking of your players as humans, not just as players or sources of income or revenue, but actual people. Um, and then how that, and then thinking about how taking that perspective might affect different design decisions that you make, or uh, in the cases of, of some of the things that I know, Dylan is eager to talk about uh, marketing and publishing decisions that you might make. Um, and then also how that uh, might affect us as board game designers when we find ourselves in contract negotiations or find ourselves in situations where maybe we don't agree with um, the way the marketing or publication of our uh, of our product is being handled because perhaps it cuts against our own views about what constitutes humane or responsible game design. Okay, great. Uh, Dylan, where are you coming from in terms of this topic? I know where it started, uh, but it branched off really quickly. So just to give everybody an idea of where it started, uh, one of my friends who really isn't a gamer uh, that I know of, I mean, he's a friend, he does jujitsu, um, and he fences, so he's a pretty cool guy. In Dylan's book, Dylan Likes Fencing. Um, but he posted one of Richard Garfield's uh, manifestos, a white paper type thing, on my page about uh, Game Player's Manifesto. And that really kind of spurred on this conversation into what we might call ethical game design, humane design, and just some of the psychology behind addiction and all that kind of stuff. So Dylan, where are you coming from? What perspective are you taking today? Well, I think that we, uh, we got into a whole bunch of very interesting topics and we left them halfway. And so I'm excited to start any number of topics and I'm gonna try to discipline myself and step back and say, okay, well, maybe I'll be acting as a foil a little bit today because I've been involved in the design of, of uh, kind of uh, free uh, software that may uh, in uh, may use this, these kind of strategies to uh, to for marketing purposes. Um, but I kind of wanted to start with Garfield's manifesto and ask if, uh, if we think that it's kind of coming from a, a position of um, someone who's already using these, uh, these techniques to sell magic cards. Jesse and I got into this a little bit already, and uh, the, the, one of the main marketing techniques that, that Wizards of the Coast use for magic cards, marketing magic cards, is 
coming out with a new set every single year that must, and only that set can be used in competition. So it's basically a way to get people addicted to buying more cards. Now we went into all sorts of different aspects of this, like just opening the packets, the psychology of, of collecting these things. But let's maybe start with, does Richard Garfield come from a position of, of kind of a moral position when he's advocating for something that perhaps he's already violating? And is it him who's violating it? Or is it Wizards of the Coast? These are very good questions. Jesse, what's, what's your opinion on this little topic that we've got kind of started here? Jesse, you're, you're so eager to talk that your mic is not on. Oh, yeah. I'm used to that being automatic through Skype. Curse you, Google. Um, <clears throat> yeah, Dylan's raising the heavy question, and I'm sitting here looking at the panel of speakers going, man, who's the expert on this? I hope Sen speaks up and says Oh, something. yeah, well, no, not, not right now. I want to um, get your opinions. Sure. So, I mean, on the first, like, small big point about um, whether or not you can, uh, Garfield's position of moral authority uh, in this circumstance, I don't think um, that it's a good uh, discursive practice to to uh, discredit somebody who's raising an objection to something just because they may have participated in that thing in the past. Um, in fact, their guilt about participating in that thing in the past may be part of what's driving them to notice the deeply problematic uh, trend in society. And so they may actually be in a position as a benefactor um, to be better aware of uh, a certain um, kind of harm, although of course the victims of the harm are also going to be um, sensitively aware to it in ways that uh, the perpetrators won't be. So we we shouldn't criticize uh, Richard Garfield for having participated in the past. If you want to criticize someone on moral grounds about that, it's what they do after they recognize that they've participated in this kind of thing. Like, does he still just bank his income from magic? Because if so, then we might be suspicious about uh, his moral standing. Um, if instead he donates that revenue towards addiction services, totally different ballpark. So that small point on the side, um, in case any listeners out there are worried about being morally consistent, uh, those are the kinds of things you should think about. Um, I think that, uh, oh, where were we? I forgot what the other part of the question was. I just wanted to make that philosophical point. <laughs> Dylan, can you remind me? That's what not you all said? you ever want to do, really, Jess. That's that's cool, but let's. I mean, let's let's kind of go back to the origin because I, we 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 started perhaps uh, with the topic that was that was being discussed on on Sen's wall, which was, you know, Garfield coming out with this thing when he's the guy who who made magic. Maybe he didn't make the marketing strategy, but he, but he made magic. Uh, let's step back and talk about um, the, the the psychology behind this Skinner boxes. One of the uh, one of the original uh, works on the idea of, of addicting gamers as a positive marketing strategy uh, is based on the concept of Skinner boxes. And just to really sum up what I remember about uh, about the background is Skinner box, of course, is a device that, for example, will give a rat a reward if and when that rat pushes a lever. Now you can set that to either randomly produce a, a reward you know okay you push a reliever uh, push a lever and maybe the uh, the reward will be sent out maybe it won't uh, you push a lever and a reward will be sent out a hundred percent of the time what was discovered was that uh, rats develop addictive behavior when the reward is semi-random 
That is, you push the lever and maybe a reward comes out. But if you don't push the, re the lever, a reward never comes out. And they, does, they have this uh, extremely obsessive compulsive behavior that develops when it's a semi-random kind of uh, uh, reward coming out of these, these boxes. Now this has evolved into many different uh, computer games using this strategy of kind of random levels of reward to keep people clicking on, uh, on computer games. This is extended throughout uh, a couple of papers, which I hope we can get the, the links to. I don't know if you're able to, to get them sent, uh, that are kind of seminal works in making computer games addictive. And this is seen as a positive for revenue flow and for marketing of these games. So that's, that's kind of where we're coming from. And I, I wanted to maybe if we can expand on just the idea of, uh, of addiction, maybe let's talk about addiction and games. Does this exist in board games? Is the marketing strategy starting with magic perhaps necessarily addictive? What do we, what do you think we're talking about in this, in this uh, respect, Jesse? Yeah. So, um, so I actually think uh, addiction in board games can is definitely totally a thing. Um, I mean, you see it with ma magic is obviously the easy example. You don't have to talk to many uh, store clerks to hear stories about people, um, you know, buying a big box of magic cards and handing over their credit card and saying, "Oh boy, I hope this works," and to, like to to feel like, "Oh man, there's something up here," or you know, comments like, "Oh, don't tell my partner that I was here today." And stuff like that. I mean, these are the kinds of things that you know they go uh, hand in hand with um, their behavioral markers of addiction. Um, but you, I mean, that's partly a marketing strategy that Magic has. It's partly the um, addictive uh, sort of the nature of gambling. It is. I mean, it, it it ties into the exact same kinds of psychological motivators that get people at slots. Right. Um, it's that semi-random reward. Um, but we can also see, I mean, you can also find examples of addiction in board games at different levels. Uh, so I'll just give a personal example. Um, I've been lucky enough to get my hands on a copy of Gloomhaven. Which I knew is, you were going to talk yeah. about that. Right. Um, and the reason I bring it up is because my partner this morning said to me, I think I'm addicted to Gloomhaven because she spends a lot of her time thinking about the game and she looks for spaces where I'm free so she can say, hey, can we play Gloomhaven now? And she doesn't feel good if we don't get a game in a day. Just because, And the reason for this, and, and so, I mean, and as a game designer, if you hear that, you might think, oh, man, that's incredible. I designed a game that people want to play all the time. On the other hand, um, for the first week that we had it, it was incredibly disruptive to our, our daily life flow. She's, uh, she works from home. I've been trying to work from home lately. Um, and it has led to us having multiple late nights that we ought not be having, we ought not be staying up till one o'clock three nights in a row. Um, and so it's having negative impacts on other aspects of our lives because we want to play this game so much. So you um, should just give it to me. <laughs> I think that's what you're trying to say. <laughs> well, well, what's happened is she's sick and so she doesn't actually have the energy to play it. And so that's why I'm here now and not playing Gloomhaven. Um, and so, uh, I mean, the, the disruptive forms of addiction need not take that same high level, uh, need not involve that same high level um, behavioral impact as uh, leading you to spend your money in, in ways that's going to cause you great harm in the future um, by taking on incredible amounts of debt. 
But it can also be disruptive in smaller ways, such as, you know, leading you to want to do the thing when you really should have the the self-control to say no, but because you feel compelled so strongly to engage in it, um, you you find yourself making bad decisions anyway. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. Uh, so, uh, <clears throat> I mean, in that case, a lot of it is due to partially the blind box mentality that is built into games like Gloomhaven where you're opening new things, seeing new things. And we wonder, our brain is built that way, um, not only on a, on a way that we want to, and we're rewarded by uh, what we call, in, in this case, would be a variable reinforcement schedule. When we don't know things are gonna happen, we wanna get that hit. Um, we're also a, a creatures of, filling in the blanks. Our, our brains automatically want to fill in spaces where we don't know what's supposed to be there. And a game like Pandemic Legacy, a game like Gloomhaven, where the unknown is there, a lot of us actually get anxious when we don't know how to fill that in. And we want desperately to fill that in. Our brain desperately wants to fill in that. And our brain is also characteristically addicted to the new, which is how the cult of new actually kind of works in a way, right? That the brain is turned on by new things all the time, all the time, all the time. If it's new, we will attend. Our brain is made to do that. Our brain is made to habituate to old things and attend to new things. And so there's a lot of psychological elements that are going on in inside of a game's design, not only at the upper level of how our game's designed, but within a single game. And so when you're telling me that uh, your partner is, you know, waking up and saying, hey, let's play Gloomhaven instead of doing work and things like that. It's just like binge watching a show. It's just like all of those things that we end up being kind of addicted to in a, in a kind of, you know, negative way. And there's a cost involved. And I think the cost that we're talking about here is everything else in life gets put aside to do the gloom havening. And until the gloom havening is done, uh, my brain wants to think about gloom haven and think about gloom haven and think about gloom haven and get that little hit of dopamine each time that I get a little piece of the puzzle put back in and fill those slots up. Right. So it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting study in design. Um, and so that's at a single game design level. Um, Andy Jewett on the feed was mentioning blind boxes, blind boxes being another way. So any booster pack, any blind packaging that we have, will do the exact same thing to our brain because we wonder what's in there. And if we didn't know anything, we'd actually be better off psychologically, right? It's because we know partial information of what might be in there. We have a guess that, it, you know, if we're chasing the rares in Magic or in Gloomhaven, if we know oh, it might be a scar or it might be a new power, new monster or something like that, bam, we've got uh, a lot of powerful, powerful forces working against our brain in terms of letting us go. It's got the hooks in and, and it's got us for as long as we let it. Um, and that's that's the power of things that are addictive, right? So moving on. Uh, Dylan, what are your responses to that? Well, I was just thinking, I mean, this is clearly a, a place where legacy games do have an advantage in, in hooking you is this partial information. But uh, what I, I, I kind of want to throw it out there to what degree do you think maybe is the legacy game 
marketing strategy and to what degree is it just, um, I mean, how can, how can a legacy game even function as a marketing strategy? How does it hook you? I kind of want to throw this over to Jesse to see what he thinks. Yeah, so I'm actually glad you, you brought up legacy games and I was actually thinking about Pandemic Legacy this morning when I was thinking about examples to talk about different um, ways in which games can be uh, run the risk of being inhumane in some way. Um, and of course, um, when I say that, I, don't, I also want to stress that I don't mean to say that um, you know, these kinds of games are bad or awful or, or morally repugnant. It's just, you know, there's, there's ways in which they might negatively interface with the rest of our lives. Um, and so I think legacy games are definitely part, um, um, part marketing strategy, right? I mean, there, there's cert a certain novelty to the idea of destroying game parts. Um, but if you look at uh, two legacy, like two, the two most recent big ones, uh, Pandemic Legacy and Seafall, both both uh, designed by Rob Davio. Davio? Davo? Davo? Davio. Davio. I had it right the first time. Trust myself. Um, both designed primarily by the same guy. Of course, Pandemic Legacy was based on an existing uh, game system that worked very well, where Seafall was designed ground up to be a legacy game. Um, and given that Seafall was designed to be a ground up legacy game, you would expect that it would be uh, the best, right? Because the, the, the core mechanic was held in mind at the moment the game was created, not like Risk Legacy or Pandemic Legacy, its predecessors, which were sort of trying to breathe life into an old, into an old idea. And yet Pandemic Legacy uh, is leaps and bounds better than Seafall in the experience. Um, and part of this, I think, is because uh, the underlying game um, is, uh, like, we're familiar with um, Pandemic Legacy, and so, or Pandemic. And so when you play Pandemic Legacy and you get to the end of the thing and you open a package and it says, oh, you've got this new thing, you have a sense of what it's going to be like to play that next game. You have a sense of how this is going to change things, but then there's uncertainty. It's this, like, measured uncertainty. Whereas one of the most common concerns or, or complaints I've heard about Seafall um, is that you often just don't know what you're getting into. There's no way to have a long-term plan or have a sense of really what's going to be next, even when you open packages and put stickers on the board, because the whole system is kind of a mystery to you, and so it's more discovery. Whereas uh, Pandemic Legacy has got this, um, it's not just novelty like Sen said, but there's also this uh, expectation that gets formed. Um, and so insofar as that might relate to um, other considerations that come up in discussions of humane design in video games, um, is this notion of exit points. Um, so one way that video games can be inhumane is if they don't have clear exit points. Um, common, common game, uh, games that commonly do this are open world games like Skyrim and, and, uh, and Witcher, these games where you've just got these never ending lists of things to do and each thing is pretty small on its own to do. Um, and so you can always say to yourself, well, just one more task, one more check mark, I'll get to the next place, I'll do the next thing. And the next thing you know, you've been playing for a day, right? Um, because the game has no clear exit points. It doesn't give you as the player a clear mark of permission to put down the controller and walk away. Um, and and in a way, Pandemic Legacy can end up doing this to you as well, because you get to the end of a scenario, and that's when you discover what the new things that are going to happen in the next scenario are, just as you're wrapping up your game session. Um, I mean, I played pan through Pandemic Legacy with Sen, and our group did it, I think, in three meetings. And the first two of those meetings involved... Yeah, that's right. And the first two of those meetings involved 
a last game that we shouldn't have played, where we pushed on in spite of exhaustion because we just wanted to see what was next. Um, so It's interesting because we did stop after the fourth game of each session uh, after that, that. And we had a, and it was basically we were punished uh, by playing more in a good way. And in, not in a good, not, you're never punished in a good way, but in the way that it actually made us not want to play the next game, which is interesting. So um, the exit points that you're talking about are, are a great example of some of the games that are really either very vast, like a sandbox style game. So I'm, I'm hearing things about, you know, uh, the new Zelda game on the Switch, where people are just kind of like, oh, I didn't realize that so much time had passed as I'm playing it. And um, so the same thing with binge watching. It's where if the product gets you to that, you know, high point, and then doesn't let you down from it, that's when you're going to get hooked to the next point, right? To got to watch the next episode. We should play the next game. And in losing the games of pandemic, we automatically are on a low. And that makes us think, hey, let's not play anymore. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a testament to good design uh, in, well, or just strong design, I guess. Good and bad are not, are not relevant here. Strong design that we wanted to play again, right? It got us. It hooked us. But then having that feedback loop that says, oh, maybe we shouldn't play a game in a game where it's the cost to play it again was more than we were willing to pay at the time. And that's actually uh, how like cessation works in things like addictions, like actual, um, you know, addiction to smoking or cigarettes or nicotine, right? So in addiction to nicotine, um, typically in order to actually make the change away from smoking, the value of not smoking has to be higher than the value of smoking for you to make that change. Otherwise, you don't make the behavioral change. The behavioral change is dictated on what rewards you and what punishes you in a lot of ways. If we're going to talk about Skinner boxes and BF Skinner and operant conditioning and all that kind of stuff, then we're going to go deep into, into actual reward structures and punishment structures. And um, punishment, um, as a rule, is typically not as strong an actor as reward. Reward is by far and away the most easy thing to work with people because typically we have rewards that we, we know off by heart without even having to experience them that this is going to be a rewarding thing. Punishment, we do have that as well, like corporal punishment. We all know getting hit is not a good thing. It's an unconditioned uh, stimulus in that case. And so is food. Food would be an unconditioned reward stimulus. We all know we need food to survive, uh, pretty much just being by being a human being. And so I, I think when we're talking about things like game systems and exit points, <clears throat> we have to think of where when does the story let us down to a point where we can safely say, I'm going to put this away for now without it being like my eyes are falling out of my head or, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I haven't bathed in two days. What, what is in a humane system that says, okay, you can put this down now. And so if you look at older games, like, um, and this is why actually Jesse, it's funny when you add, you know, cause Jesse plays a lot of, um, uh, kind of action RPG style things. 
and I won't play them anymore because I'll just spend my whole day doing that. If I if I don't look carefully at the time, I will spend all my time doing that. But a game like Street Fighter that I can, you know, play ten times and only spend a half an hour because I'm really bad at it, maybe. Um, and then it has an exit point like you died. Okay, I guess I'm done. Um, it's easier to stop doing that. Uh, and so when there's a real cost involved, like money, for things like <clears throat> gambling, for things like uh, playing at the arcade when you had to put a quarter in or a loony in or whatever, there was an easy exit point there. But when games started moving into the home, uh, into like on the Atari, into your Wii or whatever, where you can just, I don't know, I guess I can just press restart and I don't have to pay anything, I own the game. Then when do we exit? And Dylan, coming from your experience working in uh, some of the video game designs that you've done, uh, helped with, do you guys think about building in exit points that are humane to the player? Or is it just, no, we want them playing forever because the more they click, the more we wake or whatever? What do you think? Well, I, uh, I actually attempted to um, sensitize people to the fact that there are old people like me with kids who are going to be playing on their mobile device and they're going to have maybe 60 seconds to 120 seconds at a go and they're not going to be able to do it all day. Um, that, of course, when you're attempting to get people to pay for power-ups or, or to speed up processes, that works in your favor from the perspective of a, of a game. You want to make people spend those gems to speed up their, uh, their building process or whatever. Um, and we, we got into kind of uh, whales, or Garfield got into the whales in his, uh, in his um, discussion about uh, kind of this inhumane game design. Well, yeah, you're, you're using analytics to attempt to find those people you can milk and milk them. Uh, that's, that's the purpose. But you have to design your game in order to maintain uh, a user base that still makes the game interesting, even for the whales. So you have to make, in a way, multiple levels of game. You have to make a game that's going to attract and maintain people who aren't necessarily going to be able to pay you anything. Uh, and they're going to need to keep playing. And they're going to need to keep the game interesting for the whales. Uh, if you look into uh, works on freemium game design, it's really analytics. Find out what hooks and keeps your, your players coming back. And find out what uh, features make your whales keep on keep on playing. Uh, it, it's considered a good thing when you can keep people who keep on spending on your game. I think the nice thing, talking about exit points, the nice thing about uh, playing board games is that there's there's an inherent need to build, take it up uh, or uh, build it up take it down at the end of the evening and each game you actually have to invest some time and energy into into setting up you know how long approximately it's going to take there's a variable degree of the amount of time that it might take depending on your familiarity with the game and, and what have you so you you have an automatic understanding of okay well this is i'm going to be investing this much you know that in advance and it's not like during the game it's going to say hey if you'd like to have this game play shorter, pay a dollar now and then you'll be able to... No, it's not like that. There are set exit points at the end of each game. I just think it's interesting that in the, in the case of like legacy games that we've been talking about and, uh, and CCGs, 
that now there are ways that we can utilize this this strategy to hook players on on different things. And uh, just just another thing that I wanted to kick in because we had a really fun discussion uh, about the the psychology of just kind of the tactile involvement, the 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 way a pack of CCG cards, like a booster pack, opening up, cracking open that pack, the new card smell, you know, okay, there's going to be one land, there might be one rare, all this kind of stuff. That sensation is reproduced even online in games like Hearthstone, where there's an entirely superfluous appendix of a part of the game that is entirely to give you this sensation of opening a booster pack because that sensation is important to the psychology of the, that collect. You want to collect those things. You want to get that next cool card. That entire part of Hearthstone is built to hook the collectors. And it doesn't have to be there from a game perspective at all. It is purely psychological. So if they didn't, like, honestly, they don't need that. It's not part of the game. They don't need it at all but they realized that that part of the psychology is extremely real. And that came from CCGs to video games, not video games to CCGs. Yep. Jess, what do you think about that um, in terms of, because I know <laughs> that somebody <laughs> named Jesse Wright absolutely loves to open boosters so much so that he made fake little boosters for his drafting. Oh yeah, that's right. I did that, didn't I? Yeah, you um, did. Yeah, I do love opening boosters. Two, two, two silly stories about that. One, I made a fan expansion. Of, I printed out a fan Star Wars expansion of Magic. Um, yeah, you to, did. To, 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 to cube draft. Um, but it wasn't good enough for me just to have the cards. I actually made little cardboard booster packs so that I could put the cards in them and we could actually have packs to open. Um, that was way too much crafting for the event. Um, the other funny story, though, about how much I like opening booster packs, they've recently come into someone's old L5R collection, a, a game that was sold to FFG last year and is going to come out again as an LCG this Gen Con um, that I used to love and play. But I've been out of it for about four years. I got this collection of cards just the other day, and we found in the bottom of the box an unopened box of boosters. We have no idea the gameplay value of any of the cards in these boosters because this is from four years after we quit playing the game. We still are loving tearing open the packs and flipping through those cards, having no context with which to situate them in. It's just fun. Um, and, and, and we can actually see that in, uh, in board games in some places too. Um, and this, this, uh, these two examples um, might flip the coin a bit and show ways that leveraging these kinds of psychological features of humans might actually make uh, your game better in some ways without being exploitive. Um, and so the two games that come to my mind when I think about like powerful kinetics and tactile elements is Splendor, um, a game which I find kind of dry and boring but super fun anyway because manipulating those heavy poker chips is satisfying. Um, and uh, uh, Sheriff of Nottingham. <laughs> which I, Sheriff of Nottingham is, is hilarious USN. because nothing makes me happier than hearing that click. Yeah. Because there's actually the auditory click in Sheriff of Nottingham when you close the little envelopes uh, with the bags, whatever they are, 
and it's then I know that I've got you or, you know, like I can start my thing. And I think there's some real sensory yeah. elements to both of those things that you're talking about. So go back to your story. Sorry. I just wanted to interject. Oh, no, that, that I mean, that, that, was, that was kind of the end. I was going to say that. Um, and in fact, actually, to, to loop this back into the booster packs, when you and I were first talking, Sen, about the, the little envelopes and Sheriff of Nottingham and the satisfying click of closing them and opening them, uh, one of the first things that you said was, could we design a, a game that uses those as like booster packs? Right, right. And then Millennium Blades came out. And then Millennium Blades came out, right? Which but Millennium kind of what I wanted to loop back to, but yeah. Right, but Millennium Blades, interestingly enough, it has uh, it does a good job of the feel of opening a pack in terms of the uncertainty of the cool cards you're going to get. But it doesn't have any of those kinetic elements. Because mm-hmm. um, you've got this, when you set up the game, you've got this big stack of 250 cards you might possibly buy during the game. They're laid out into a 3x3 three three grid of nine currently available cards, and they're face down. But the backs of the cards give you some information about the pa- the sets that they belong with. So you have a sense of what's in there. Um, but when you purchase a card, you just throw your wad of cash into the pile and you pick up a card, right? Okay, but the cash is, is kind of cool in Millennium Blades. The cash is cool, yeah. It's the only game that I like the paper money in it. Because what you do when you open the game, the first thing you have to do is you take uh, stacks of 10 paper bills and wrap them with a sticker. So you have yeah, wads of paper cool. cash. It's really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that game, uh, Millennium Blades, gets you that exciting moment of like, oh, I'm going to buy it. What's this card going to be? Is it going to fit in my deck? Like, you get to have that, but you don't have any of the kinetic elements to it. And so, I mean, there's something yeah. interesting there. That's, that is interesting. I mean, from, from a psychological perspective, what we're looking at there from the kinetics is, um, well, it could be called lots of things, but in my field of study, we'd call it like a sensory thing, um, a sensory kind of desire to do that action and the best way to define it is if you would do it by yourself in a room with nobody watching it's sensory that's that's how we kind of in a a non-clinical way decide if somebody's doing something for a sensory reason or for an access reason or for an avoidance reason and so jesse is saying that he would gladly just sit there and open boosters not with, you know, nobody be watching him. He'd just be opening boosters and he would have fun doing that. Uh, and part of it is the sensory satisfaction of ripping open the booster, hearing the sound, you know, smelling the cards, the new card smell. I don't know if there is one. Uh, but all that stuff is is a sensory hook into the, the, the behavior that you enjoy. And it's the same thing with ripping up the cards in pandemic legacy um, in kind of a weird opposite way that the meaningfulness of the decision that you made in pandemic legacy is emphasized. Like you put an exclamation point or seven on that when you rip the card and recognize that this decision is permanent, bam, gone that we don't have with some of the resettable ones. Um, So they're, they're using psychology to a very high degree in terms of the feels that you're getting from the kinesthetics of opening boxes and ripping up cards. Um, whether they intended to or not, it doesn't matter. They did it, and it, it worked um, to the point where some people won't play the game because they don't want to rip things up, which is a different, which is the flip side of, of that kind of perfectionist uh, collectability 
sort of mentality that some people have towards games as well. Uh, Dylan, what do you want to talk about now? I had a few directions I wanted to run off in, but um, I, I was just casting my mind back to the Popomatic bubble. If you ah, remember, yes, good one. One of the great tactile senses of an otherwise completely useless game. But you'd sit there alone in your room, just going until your parents shouted at you. It's like bubble wrap the, the game. It is, it is, it's exactly, it's a fidget box. It's a fidget box, the game, right? So to, to a degree, like sometimes the tactile sense is the only thing a game's got. And understanding your game from every psychological angle, obviously, can really pay off. But uh, so I have two directions. I'm going to pick one. One, I kind of wanted to ask, what of, okay, the binge watching aspect of legacy games. Okay, so you're, you've, you've gone through your first four games of Pandemic, pandemic Legacy, and you're not going to go to the next one because, I don't know, it's, it's too much of an investment in time. But, like, to, to what degree is a Legacy game the same as binge-watching a series in that you really don't want to necessarily watch the series again once you're done? Is that kind of a an operational level exit point? Are we talking about something that you'd, you'd, never, you'd never do again necessarily? Or are, am I gonna go out and buy Pandemic Legacy again because I want the experience all over again? Is that part of it addictive? I'll, I'll pass this one over to Jesse if I could. All right, well, I mean, you're asking about, you know, formal psychology stuff. That's Sam's wheelhouse. But um, I can say that, I mean, I do know people that have bought three copies of Pandemic Legacy. Um, I mean, there's something fun about that experience for them, right? Um, and it also has a score at the end. Uh, and if you didn't get the top score, then you might find yourself saying, oh man, if we could do that again, if now that we know how this is all going to play out, we could do so much better. Right. Um, and so that like hooks you back in. But with legacy games, that hooks you back into another full game box purchase. Right. Um, and this I mean, and this is now what starts to lean back into those not not necessarily like full on uh, concerns about full on addiction, um, in part because of the amount of time it takes and the fact that you kind of need other people to play these games. Um, but still, this kind of the general notion of predatory design or predatory practices, where, um, where what you're doing is you're getting more money out of people. Now, whether or not that was the intent of the score chart at the end of Pandemic Legacy, or whether that was just provided because the designers thought, you know, it would be really nice if people had a way uh, to compare how well they did to other people, right? Because it's got this story arc, and there's all these decisions you make, and you might wonder, did I do good or did I do bad? Because then the whole thing might become sort of a, a mega co-op game. You've got these like, you know, 10 to 24 micro co-op games that you play to see how you did in the overall. And maybe that's why they put it there. But um, it still has had the impact on some people that it's created this repeat buying behavior. Um, and so there can be a difference there too between your intentions as a designer. I intended this for this very good design reason. Um, and when I say when I say we should think also about humane design is to take that step back um, to bring out the tools of psychology or whatever you've got and ask yourself, okay, but is that all this is doing? <clears throat> That's really interesting that you brought the, the intent versus impact argument into the, or discussion into this uh, because I just talked about that at school today. Um, oftentimes, we, we, I think 
in a lot of ways, um, society today is very, very focused on impact, which is okay, which is a good thing, right? Because not impact is what happens and it's very real. And we should 100% look at impact and say, okay, what is the impact of this? And then later on, after we've, you know, maybe had some apologies or maybe made amends, then it's time to look at the intent behind it. And what did we intend to do? And how did how did that happen from our intent? Um, and in this design of things like legacy games, um, I don't know, I could ask, but I don't think, I really don't think they were thinking people would buy it multiple, multiple times, like three or four times. Um, <clears throat> I got two boxes, but the only reason why I got two boxes was because I knew that I wanted to play it with friends, and then I also wanted to play it with family, and it's going to be a different game with family because they're like, you know, 12-year-old and 9-year-old kids, right? So it's going to be a little different. Um, and I was okay with that. I knew what I was in for, and I knew that it wasn't because they made me buy that second copy. Um, and people that I know who've played it multiple times in over and have bought multiple copies are the type of people who wanted to share the experience with somebody else because they liked the experience so much. So <clears throat> I'm not sure if on a grand scale of a game per game, game uh, of a game box by game box uh, sense of the word, there is that true predatory nature in that. I definitely think there's something in how Rob uh, scripted the story arcs. It's not predatory, but it's definitely cinematic in the way that, oh, and now, hey, all the awesome stuff. And you want to go again, right? There's definitely that driving force there. So while I wouldn't necessarily think it's predatory, like, <coughs> like some of the, you know, uh, pay-to-play type mechanics that we see in video games are. Um, there's definitely something in the, the Pandemic Legacy arc writing that helps to drive you to play just one more game, just one more game, right? It's, it's, it's not Clash of Clans, no, but you don't buy two boxes of Scythe because you're going to be playing it with different people. That is true. Very, very true. And that's intrinsic in the design itself um, that because of the nature of stickering things and taking off and destroying the cards that we're going to get into that second box type thing now i mean if you were really careful you could reassemble the whole thing if you really wanted and uh in fact jesse's seen these i was gonna buy a bunch of like trans not transparent but trans opaque the opposite of transparent opaque uh, ziploc bags to make uh you know to redo to make a redoable legacy game, um, because I, I I think there is something not wrong with the way that it happens in you know standard legacy game today, <clears throat> but that people who are upset by it, you know, they'd like to be a part of it too. So <coughs> why not make a system that does reset? So anyway, that I guess would be humane, right, Jess? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It depends, right? I mean, there is something nice about the permanency of legacy games, and you lose something when you lose that. Um, I think the call to humane design is just a call to think carefully about how your decisions are going to interface with the players. So one way that, for instance, I think Pandemic Legacy could be improved in this dimension is to make it so that um, 
every third or so uh, scenario, you don't find out what the new stuff is until midway through the next game. So you don't have that pull to immediately like reset and keep playing, right? And get into that binge watching habit. It provides you an exit point. Here's a game that you finished. You know that you've got more to do, but we haven't tempted you with any more new things yet. The new things will come once you decide to start playing again. So that's permission for the players to, to leave. And so things like that, um, I think. But I don't think um, legacy in and of itself is, is ultimately problematic. It just turned out uh, to be a good uh, case and recent trend to discuss some of these ideas in. Um, so thank you. So I, I kind of wanted to go off on the, on the second tangent, unless, unless people have, you want to put up their hands. Okay, cool. Uh, we were talking also about, you know, if you're making a prototype, uh, you don't go throw an art. I mean, I like to put art on it just because that's what I do. Uh, lots of people do like to put art on their prototypes. But if you're going to be submitting a prototype to a publisher, your whole point is not to wow them with the art. It's to wow them with the gameplay. So you don't necessarily go throwing loads and loads of energy into the art. You throw it into the gameplay. So if you're not going to put money into the art, you're not going to put time into the art to, to try and sell the game. Should designers be thinking about marketing, which again is really a publisher side issue? Should we be thinking about marketing when we're pitching our games? Should we be thinking, ah, you know, well, we could actually use this game to encourage addictive behavior in clients, and they'll buy more than three boxes every time they go into go into buy a game? Does marketing play into pitching your game? Let's let's go with sin on this one. Well, I mean kind of intrinsically I think about marketing because I think about human behavior every day all day uh, and so I think about how <laughs> Jonathan is just showing up to hear the end of the conversation he says um, but I do I do think that uh, designers would be wise to think about their audience in terms of how their gameplay will affect their um, you know, purchasing power and all that kind of thing, or the purchases. Um, why? Because it's it does help your game get signed in the end. If you say, you know, I've got three expansions already lined up, um, that's could be a potential selling point to some publishers who say, yeah, content is good. If we can put your game out in, you know, quarter one, and then, you know, at Gen Con announce the the next um, Expansion, you know, you've got them on that cyclical hook uh, before their interest in the <coughs> in the game wanes. <coughs> Jesse, take over. Um, right. Uh, <laughs> but I wanted to know what Zen had to say. Zen, stop being sick. Are you okay over there? Um, all right, thumbs up. Uh, yeah. So I mean. I mean, I think, yeah, sends, uh, sends of course, um, the expert pitcher in the room here. Um, speaking from the perspective, though, of someone who's new to the, to the board game industry and new to pitching to publishers, um, 
I try to shy away from marketing, at least in, in first, second contact uh, with, with the same publisher. But part of that is because I'm worried that uh, I'm concerned to build relationships, not because I don't have ideas about marketing potential, not because I don't have thoughts such as those that, um, that Dylan mentioned, but because I don't want a publisher, I don't want to approach a publisher and say, here's a cool game. Also, you could market it this way, you know, and then have the publisher react, well, who, who are you? You no-name designer, not a game publisher. That's my job. Get out of here. I don't need to talk to you. And so I'm worried about creating that um, a bad first impression or second impression. And so I just try to stick to what I'm supposed to be there to do. Um, but yeah, I mean, I can, I can see, I can see having a good marketing idea giving you an edge on your pitch. Um, but then, you know, you might have to ask yourself if you think you're doing a favor to the sort of social community of board gaming. Um, alternatively, the publisher might come up with that idea independently of you. And then you might wonder if you're not comfortable with the way that your game is going to be marketed or pushed or dressed up in art, um, what do you do? Uh, and I think that's that's also a difficult. Question. I think that's a better question, really. Uh, and you're you're right, Jesse. Actually, your your approach to building relationships first is is very important. So on our old sell sheets, we used to actually put you know why we think it will sell, and we don't do that anymore because uh, one or two publishers, not a lot of them, but one or two publishers kind of did react that way and said you know well that's our job. We know how to sell this stuff. You guys just make it. And we said, okay, cool. And so we don't overtly ever say to them, we think it would sell well to, you know, children under six and that kind of thing. We just make the game and we let that speak for itself in a lot of ways. But we do think about it in terms of, okay, how would this be? What would this look like on the shelves? How is this going to be marketed? Um, who is it going to be marketed to? And then we make, we kind of fit the game to that market a little bit better. Uh, it's sort of it's sort of a, an iterative process in and of itself. It's like, okay, we made this game, but based on the name of the game and the style of play, it's probably going to get marketed to, uh, you know, children 12 and under. Okay, well, then we need to change the math in the game because the math is too hard for children 12 and under, but the theme and the activity fits. Okay, reduce the math. Okay, we've reduced the math. Now <clears throat> it seems to fit better. So there is... There is you know, a good reason to think about how it's going to be marketed to, who it's going to be marketed to. And and again, the how it's going to be marketed is also another thing that you do want to think about. I, I think when you said the word how the game is going to get dressed up in art or in theme, there is a lot to think about with that. Like if a game of mine got rethemed in a kind of theme I didn't like, I'd I'd have a problem. I think I would. In terms of, you know, while, while apparently, uh, you know, Tanto Quare and um, the game about girls in tanks, what's it called, Jesse? Not my area of specialization, I'm oh. afraid. Oh, but you know what it is. It's that, it's that uh, game from Japan, girls in tanks. But anyways. No. Yeah. Yeah, with the Nazi promos. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. it wasn't you. It was it was, um, it was Stuart. Stuart. We, we're going to blame Stuart on that one. Uh, but the point is that no matter how good those games are, I will never touch them because of the thematics of it. And so the same for me, if I ever got put in the position where they said, oh, yeah, we'd like to retheme your game in sexy Nazis in with tanks because we think that'll sell, I would have a very big problem with that. Uh, just from a 
you know, ethical, moral standpoint. That's just me. Uh, this is actually kind of a, a good place where I, I was I was just on BGG today and I yeah, I won't name any names, but just there was someone complaining about a Kickstarter that had occurred. And toward the end of the complaint was actually naming the you know the author of the game, the, the designer of the game, as someone to complain about. If if you're even if you've got absolutely nothing to do with the sexy Nazis and Panzers on your game, or you know whatever objectionable design or whatever objectionable marketing choices are being made on on a on a given game, names on it. Uh, it's it's important to be responsible to a degree for um, what you put in your name on. So yeah, in this day and age where basically someone can get online and castigate a, a person whose name is on a game for choices that they didn't necessarily make, I, it makes a great deal of sense. And I'm going to pass this right over to Jesse. It makes a great deal of sense to make sure that that relationship is there and that you have a constant dialogue with the publisher to make sure that your name's not on something that you regret. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. This is one of the things that came up in our um, conversation yesterday when we were trying to figure out what to talk about today. I had mentioned with respect to humane design, but also with respect to marketing decisions and the art on your game. Um, in this day and age of designer board games, designers' names are currency, and so they get printed on the box. Because even if you're not a not a great design, a well-known designer now, you might be in two or three years, and that might drive back-end sales of the old stock. Um, and those old games actually are part of your portfolio for selling yourself to to future publishers. And so the games that you make um, represent you in a really important way. But you don't make all the decisions that are involved in that final product presentation and that final marketing push. Um, and those decisions, whether or not you like it, are going to reflect on you, whether or not you played a role in them. And so to this end, um, again, I'm, I'm new to all of this. Um, I only really started seriously pitching games last Gen Con. Um, and I have turned down a contract with a publisher because I, saw, I looked into them and I saw some of the other art, uh, the ways, the art direction that they had taken on some of their other games, and I didn't want my name on it. And they wouldn't agree to put uh, art um, some degree of art control in the contract so that I could have some influence over it. And so I said, you know, I just don't think this relationship's going to work out or this, I just don't think this game's going to work out here. Um, I backed out in a polite way and didn't, and tried not to burn bridges, but still, I mean, um, and from that point onward, I have made an effort in all of my contracts to ensure that there is some kind of, uh, avenue for me to at least have, uh, some influence on the art direction that the game takes. Because I see that as a very easy way that a publisher um, could, with all good intentions, represent something in a way that I'm not comfortable having my name attached to. So, that's really interesting. So, that is that is interesting, is what I wanted to say. Um, so, a lot of you guys probably know the the story of the Belfort expansion and um, how we kind of got raked over the coals for that one, in terms of representation and whatnot, <clears throat> and. I am a big champion of representation, you know, being a person of color. Uh, but at the end of the day, there are a lot of things that aren't my decision in terms of, can we get new art for that? This art is already done. It's, it's in the hopper. We pressed print already. There's nothing we can do to change it, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, and then I think a lot of times this the when we did this, which was several years ago, the we still had quite an old school mentality when it came to dealing with social media because you know we were older at the time uh, we were younger at the time but we were still older than most of the people who were commenting on these things um <clears throat> and i think that a lot of times now you do really have to be aware of your social capital uh in terms of you know will people recognize your name and will they associate it with something that is negative and so i see a lot of the younger designers actually building into their contracts or wanting to build into their contracts anyways they don't know if they actually ever get this in there but things like you know if there are characters in my game they need to be uh, at least equal in representation for uh, feminism uh, females to males um, you know gender biased um, can't can't have a gender bias you know we want to have inclusion of many different people of colors that kind of stuff and so that's that's really interesting and that's a big shift in terms of mentality that wasn't there like 10 11 years ago and it is you know very much in the forefront of the minds of new publishers and new designers nowadays because it is a new edge like it's, the, it's now the leading edge is these new young designers and upstart companies that are disrupting the you know, the old guard in some ways, where we're going to see uh, games like One Deck Dungeon, where it's all females, all the females, all, all characters are females, and none of them are wearing chainmail bikini. And that's awesome. Right. So, you know, we do get our names associated with this stuff. And it's, it's important that we are not catering to the audience, but really being honest to ourselves, I think is more important. Being good to the audience, being humane to the audience. Yeah, yeah that exactly. too. that's what we're talking about. Yeah, Jesse, did you have a uh, question or a point? No. <clears throat> no, I was just going to say, oh, I'm also addicted to One Deck Dungeon. Um, <laughs> but that's that's neither here nor there. No, it, it's here. What, did, what about One Deck Dungeon? I'm, I'm sure Chris would want to know. What about yeah. One Deck Dungeon is, is filling that, is getting that dopamine hit? Hmm. I don't know if I want to. So, so it's weird. Um, it's because it has the perception of being quick to play. And it's a solo game, so I can play it by myself, um, which means that it's easier to fit into a space. Uh, but I always am surprised at how long it took uh, by the time I'm done, and uh, often come to regret the decision to play it, uh, which is why I don't end up playing it multiple times in a row. Um, but just because of the way that the game works, it, it takes longer than, than it feels like it it should take and you don't and it's fun enough that you don't notice how long it's taking when you're playing it so it's just this like interesting confluence of things um so i lost you know i, mean, I didn't lose i mean i had fun I, I i did lose at one deck dungeon but i didn't lose the time um it was well enjoyed but i spent more time than i expected to on it uh, a couple of days in a row and so i've since had to curb it in the same way that i curb other addictive habits of mine so dylan um Jonathan on the feed is asking, can we bring elements of humane design into the RPG world? That's where he normally designs a lot of stuff in. Um, and I don't know, what do you what do you think? Is there room for that? I, obviously there is, I think there is, but what are your thoughts on that? 
Well, loads of new RPGs have already have already taken that angle. I mean, it used to be when I sit, when I sat down to play an RPG, we were probably going to be spending the night at somebody's house and like sleeping on the couch or whatever because you're going to play all night. But there are several RPGs nowadays that, like Yes Master or whatever, like that you can just um, you can sit down and play a short um, a short game in in an evening. Just being able to to have a bunch of people get together, play an RPG that is either session based or is just a one shot deal, where you can uh, you can play it in an evening is humane design, not forcing people to have all of the sets of Dungeons and Dragons uh, kind of basic edition to be able to to know what to roll for this creature. But I remember I remember having to buy. Okay, we've got to buy the the master set now because that's where all of these creatures are for this level. In a way, that's that's addictive. I mean, you're you're forcing the player to to buy more just to be able to play the basic game that they should have been able to play from the very beginning. So obviously, yeah, there's there's loads of uh, uh, of things that we can do in the RPG space to be able to to make things more accessible. But um, it's it's being done. Uh, yeah, I was I was trying to remember the what's the one year or whatever it is the kind of storytelling game. I can't recall the name of it. Like I mean, microscope or? Well, there's micro, microscope. Oh, that one about the kingdom. No, it's it's something a something year. I can't remember the name of it. Oh, it, I do know which one you're talking about because you you were playing it. You build a map. You're drawing on your map and exactly. you just kind of name things. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, where you can actually sit down and, and tell a, a story together, and it's it's not about hit points and 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 rolling rolling stats and crap like that. It's you're telling a story together, which is in the end kind of what an RPG is supposed to be. You're, you're attempting to, to create a narrative together with exciting stuff that excites you about the, about the story. So yeah, I mean, a lot of that work is already being done and I, I've been amazed because I've been out of the RPG world for so long uh, at the amount of imagination that's going into uh, ways to create those collective narratives. Yeah. If you, if you are interested in uh, game design at all, uh, and I hope you are if you're watching the show. And also in RPGs, um, the RPG panel cast that uh, Jason Petrie, who's a fellow Canadian, goes around to a bunch of the conventions like Metatopia and whatever, records all the panels. Um, they have some great stuff. There's a lot of really cool stuff happening in the RPG realm because it is <clears throat> not easier to develop an RPG, not even at all. That's not the word I'm looking for. It's not easier. It's just slightly different. Um, and because things are, you know, a lot more in the head space than they are in the meat space in terms of tactile, things like that, um, I don't, you know, they have to be, they do things in a, in a slightly different way um, that might be able to be brought over to board game Landia, if you want to call it that, if there's a divide between the two. Um, although one of the things I do remember from the 90s was when White Wolf um, did cards for changeling. They did these tarot cards that were just your your spells. They weren't called spells, but you know what I mean. Your cantrips and things like that. And they were blind. They were in a blind um, format booster. Uh, and there's absolutely no reason for them to be. And I think they realized later that uh, they didn't have to do that because it kind of killed the system in a way. But it was it was a really interesting choice for them to publish it as a blind booster. It was right when Magic was obviously 
at its uh, not its infancy, but its you know super big grasp at the industry into the hobby. And so they were kind of trying to capitalize on that market, I guess, or that mentality. A lot so, of people made those errors at that time, seeing yeah. how amazing Magic was taking the market by storm. Yeah, the Quiet Year—that's the name, Dylan. Yes, yes, yes yeah. It that's was. thank you, Jonathan, for being our encyclopedic knowledge. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, Jesse, what are your thoughts on humane design in RPGs and how they are doing it differently, better, or whatever? Mm. How can we bring that over to Boardlandia? Mm. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting question. I wish I actually knew more about RPGs as they currently stand. I have to admit, most of what I've done these days has been read cute little one-shots because they're cute and they're little, um, and and play D&D 5th Edition because that's what all my friends want to play, and a big part of playing RPGs is friends. Um, it's much harder to pull those things together uh, by yourself. But I think that I think that Dylan's kind of right that... Um, the more humanely designed RPGs are the ones that allow closed uh, campaign experiences that can be over in, in a session um, that don't require you to have regular meetings over a very long period of time because it can get difficult. It's difficult to actually pull that stuff together. Um, and also the, the game systems that maybe they do have expansion content, but they don't mandate it by virtue of the design of the system, but actually you want it because it makes a game you already love bigger and better, right? So there's value in the content in, in, in itself. Um, and I think a lot of RPGs sort of try to do that because it's really hard in an RPG design to do um, the kind of thing that Magic does or Warhammer used to do where you have a competitive scene and so you can have rules about what's allowed. Um, but even with D&D Adventurers League, it's, it's not quite the same. Right? It's a lot more fuzzy. That's than, right. Yeah, uh, you know, a 400-point army battle in Warhammer. Right, exactly. Um, and if, and, if, they, and if, if Wizards was to release another source book and say, okay, no more stuff from the you know, Sword Coast Adventurers guide, the players would explode and like burn down Wizards of the Coast or something. I don't know what RPG players do when they get upset. Well, they would have a circle <laughs> of protection red around right. the building so it wouldn't matter. They'd right. Tap some mana and they'd be safe. So, uh, but, yeah. So the RPG community, at least to my, to my view, and I'm sure Jonathan in the comments can dispute me as he's more familiar with it, but um, is, is less tolerant of of the kinds of, of things that companies can get away with in video games and board games. I think because they don't have to be. Yeah. They don't have to succumb to that. You're right. Like You don't have to own deities and demigods to play Dungeons and & Dragons and have gods in it. You could just make them up. You can just it make them up. Doesn't matter. Homebrew. Yep. Yeah, it, well, in fact, I mean, uh, Jesse might know this, but I, I actually GM most games with no stats at all because they don't matter in the end. The, the only reason why they matter is when you have to argue with the player. And I don't play that way. So and DM always wins, dude. DM no, 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 no. It's, no, it's not, it's not even that. <laughs> it's just like, why are we arguing about arbitrary numbers in something where it doesn't really matter? So, um, <laughs> and, I was and actually wondering. Thing, sorry. Oh yeah. Go, no, go ahead. You were actually. No, I, wondering. I was just wondering if I could go to go back to microscope because we were talking about microscope earlier and, and yeah, some of the I, humane elements. Cool. I just want to ask, add one more thing before okay. we go. I think one of the big things that is happening 
uh, and it's happened already, obviously, in the RPG world, are things like Creative Commons, open source gaming, like D20. Um, not really that, but um, a powered by the apocalypse is huge. So things like that where people are allowed to create within a system that they already love and publish and make money doing that thing that they love to do using tried and true and valued system that people have already got an idea of how to play within that that system, not within the world, but within the system. And that in itself can lead to the whole idea of non-predatory practice. Like, oh, there's lots of options and you don't have to go here and you can make stuff up and you don't have to pay me for this. Everybody gets to use it, right? So there's it's a, it's a lower barrier to entry in terms of publishing costs for an RPG, as Jonathan mentioned. But he's saying there's a lot of things that they could do better. So I'd like to hear from him someday. We'll have to bring him back on. Dylan, go ahead, microscope. I was just going to, yeah, microscope. I remember sitting down and just getting the family together and, and my wife being a little bit skeptical about what exactly we were doing. But we sat down and if you've played microscope, a lot of the rules are basically how to contribute nicely to the story and how to dispute something that may not follow along the narrative uh, that you've that you've kind of established. So in a way, you're generating not just a narrative, you're not just building world, but you're also de developing standards as a group as to kind of what, what should fit in the story. And so it meant that every member of the family contributed. And it meant that my son, who's, who can interject and be quite domineering sometimes, basically because of the rules of the game, it's like, no, it's your sister's turn to talk and, and she's going to say her piece. And I, I hadn't been thinking about um, kind of the humanity in games in that way throughout this discussion, but to a degree, that way of structuring human interactions, which is basically, let's boil down games. There's a bunch of human interactions in a game and you structure them through rules and making a positive user experience, making a positive game experience is about structuring those interactions in such a way that everyone comes away with a positive experience or at least a more positive than negative experience. I see you've got your microphone off. So let's hear your 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 piece on that, Zen. Um, I was just going to say that a lot of times RPGs, because their rules are technically a lot fluffier and grayer than board game rules, board game rules have to be, you know, 100% bulletproof in order for the game to work because there is no GM by, in most of them, by nature. Um, and the systems have to be grokkable by the players because typically it's competitive. So we get a little bit of a different systems perspective from RPGs to board games. But one of the things I love about RPGs is that communal kind of social contracting in terms of what's allowed, what's not allowed. And those types of things in and of themselves will break down a lot of the barriers in terms of addiction, in terms of, um, you know, uh, so predatory things like we're going to play this game and we're never going to, you know, need to buy another expansion. Is everybody okay with that? I don't want to buy another expansion. Let's just play with the base set. Um, or things like, um, so we're going to end after, you know, at 12 o'clock, I've got to go 
And so we're all going to end then. Is that okay? Right? So those social contracts do kind of get into making things more humane just by the nature that there's a human being running the system as opposed to a game running the system. And when we leave it up to a game system to run things, we do actually have to use the tools of psychology in order to run the game a lot um, because it's different. So if you think about how games are played, board games and card games specifically, uh, not necessarily RPGs, um, we incite specific behaviors by how we reward and punish all the time. That's how a game system works in mathematics, right? To bring the mathematics into the psychology is, I will most likely do something that gets me 10 points over something that gets me five points, if that's all it gets me, right? So you can see how that's just basic Skinner box mentality right there. Um, but an RPG doesn't really work like that. And so I, I think the RPGs are a little more, by their nature, almost immune to this. Uh, because there is, like I said, a human running the show behind that curtain. Uh, and video games, because they're even such, even much more mathematical and less likely to have human interpretation of rules and things, they're going to be the ones where it is just you and you can lose yourself in that time frame. Whereas even Jesse and Helena and uh, Ellie and I had to make a conscious decision to keep on going or to quit. But if it was just me playing, I might stay up for 12 hours one deck dungeoning, Jesse. Yeah. Well, there's something, I mean, uh, as my parting shot to go back to our uh, our natural exit points for Pandemic Legacy um, was was because the, the game requires a certain amount of cognitive awareness to actually do it, right? You can't just mindlessly play Pandemic. In fact, it, well, it turned out that maybe I could because the way our last game always went was you three were tired and I was like, forget it. Just put your cards on the table. I'll do it. <laughs> and and um, that is why we lost the last game all the shut time. Up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. time. Yeah, I know. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so uh, anyway, I've, not, I've, I've now lost my train of thought, but uh, I need to get running as, uh, as was dictated by the thing that caused me to lose my train of thought. So thanks for having me on, guys, uh, and I'll see you all some other time. Excellent, uh, Jesse. Just uh, send me the link to the things I need to print tonight, and that'd be awesome. Already doing it. Awesome. All right, we'll see you later, Jesse. Uh, Dylan, um, just to end the show, what are your final thoughts on humane game design, addiction in game design, all that kind of stuff? I mean, we could talk forever on this stuff, and we probably will talk some more at some point, but we could and it's it's great to have your like jesse and your perspective just with your your background in kind of cognitive science and, and psychology to be able to talk about this stuff but i think we have to remind ourselves that board games get it right more often than they get it wrong um they are inherently i'd say the intent is non-predatory i mean they want to to jump off the shelf and get bought by you but um we do a really good job and that's because there are humans involved. And just like you said, like in RPGs, there are these social contracts that are formed that are because of that fuzziness, because of that grayness uh, of the system. But all, all games require the agreement of all players on a given rule set. And they are, like I said, a bunch of structured interactions of humans that board game designers, pay, it's paid to make those interactions 
positive. Those payoffs are positive. Now, maybe you're going to have a game like Diplomacy or Thief or stuff like that that is there are negative feelings that can be generated during the game or there can be negative payoffs. But in the end, the game as a whole is fun. It's enjoyable. It's a, it's a way to experience new things in a safe environment. And in the end, that's kind of a good place to put those impulses. It's a, it's a, a putting, putting a backstabbing into a game and not in real life, that's a good thing. And drawing a little circle around those experiences and saying, okay, well, that was for this world. And now you've experienced that. You've had, you've had that experience and you don't have to do it in everyday life. I think it's, the it's, games really get it positively. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because one of the biggest things that my kids love and Josh and Helena's kids love is lying. They love Ooh. to lie in games like cockroach poker, cheating moth. Those are their favorite games because they're socially allowed to lie by the contract. And they enjoy breaking those little rules. But then they know that they can't do that in real life. And that, yep. that to me is, you know, a good thing, right? Uh, so that goes to what you said. But I wanted to ask you one parting question. Um, what's your thoughts on Kickstarter, stretch goals, and that kind of psychology in terms of marketing? <laughs> Okay, so I, I have a, a theory that a lot of board gamers are quite type A personalities and they tend to be completists. And so I, I actually think that creating a series, creating a, uh, a bunch of stuff you have to have uh, in order to, to have a, a complete game is too enticing. A I mean, like, I'm not gonna say it's, it's immoral, Stretch goals are used by some Kickstarters almost as a form of blackmail. It's like, well, if we don't get enough money, you won't really have a complete game. I mean, we wanted to make it this way, but you won't really have a complete game unless we get this much money. Or it can be simply a way of snazzing up a game with more art or more miniatures or whatever. One way or the other, gamers tend to want the whole thing they want the whole package and so expansions all that kind of wonderful stuff for stretch goals uh, i think in in the wrong hands it's not that moral it's not it's not humane to the gamers uh, i know that um gavin from roxley is always saying we're always going to have a complete game as the base and anything thrown in as a stretch goal is it's not part of a game. It's it's in addition to. It's more art. It's more this. It's more that. It's it's different production values. If you're going to be putting more of the game in a in a stretch goal, I don't consider that particularly ethical. But that's just me. No, I'm with you on that one as well. Um, and it's why I just fire and forget when I hmm. back Kickstarters. Seriously, I'll just say I back at the highest level that it possibly is and whatever i get i get i don't look at it anymore i don't track it daily i don't look at people's um like if you send me messages on kickstarter jason katarski who just sent me a bunch today <laughs> i won't read them because i don't uh because if i do then i'm spending more time on that than i should be you know i don't know maybe designing a game for jason katarski to sign and publish um so really for me ignorance is bliss when it comes to that kind of thing um because I am a completist, I complete everything I possibly can. Uh, and so if I know there's more, I will buy more. 
So like Jesse said, he, there are strategies that you can use <coughs> to avoid the situations by literally avoiding the Kickstarter page. Like don't avoid Kickstarter because, you know, you don't want to spend money because if you want to buy a game, you want to spend money and you want to support somebody doing the Kickstarter, that's fine. But if you don't want to get caught in the, the hamster wheel of the ever increasing stretch goals and more stretch goals and more stretch goals, um, back once and let it ride and just hope you get what you want. And that's fine too. Um, otherwise it is like a constant, it's almost like one of those, uh, the sushi, uh, <laughs> <laughs> You know, the rivers of sushi. The sushi conveyor is totally a Skinner box. It's like, I don't know if the egg's going to come around again. I I don't know. I better take this egg. It's like, right. Tamago? I need Tamago. Because somebody else is going to eat it if I don't take it now. And who knows if it's going to come again? Oh, Oh God, are those dinosaurs? Yes, I need those. Okay, so I guess, Dylan, we need to make a a sushi conveyor belt game. Sushi conveyor belt game. Have you made one yet? (laughs) No, I haven't. You, You probably should. My wife would totally play that. Oh my God, yes. Okay, then you should totally make it. I should totally make that. Yeah, because it is, it is a, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, obviously things like um, push your luck games are obviously psychological in terms of that. But okay, so I mean, the actual psychology that is going on or one of the parts of actual psychology that's going on, there's a lot with Kickstarters and your uh, stretch goals is like loss aversion, right? We are so averse to missing out on being complete that a lot of people would rather not do anything than have incomplete. And so they'll wait. They'll say, I'm going to wait until it makes it to market. And nowadays, that's legit. You can do that. Back in the good old days, like 2013 of uh, Kickstarter, you weren't sure if something was going to make it to market. And so you were caught up in the loop. Right. Yeah. And now most of the stuff that gets to Kickstarter is successfully funded. You're going to get, you know, six months later in a store anyway. So especially yeah. if it's one of the big ones, like cool mini or not. And most of the stuff that they're doing now, um, like the upgrades and things like that, most of them are cosmetic anyways. And the base game is the base game. So exactly. I, I think they've a lot of them have gotten bitten by feedback in terms of saying, hey, uh, we don't like that. Right, like yeah, Gavin or, said, hey, you'll I, always do that. Yeah, exactly. I, the the people who are like, hey, I didn't realize I could have just bumped up my, <laughs> bumped up my uh, my pledge and gotten this, and that would have been a complete game to me. But I, I was also raising in our discussion earlier um, on online yesterday was that, you know, uh, because of this impulse to complete, LCGs are kind of just as guilty as CCGs in being you know hooking us on completeness oh i gotta buy all of the cards for this army or oh but, I've but the time frames di- the time frame's different right very true yeah so in psychology when we talk about reinforcement systems you know how quickly you have to reinforce somebody to actually make it work no idea without explanation it's 30 seconds hmm. in order to make reinforcement actually valuable and impactful so that's why feedback has to be given as immediately as it can, right? Now we're human beings and we're intelligent, so we can wait, but only if we know we have to wait, right? So if I'm teaching a little kid about pooping on the potty, it's gotta be feedback immediately. If I'm t- talking to you, Dylan, about the game that I played of yours last week, and I'm gonna give you feedback, I can say, Dylan, it's gonna take me you know, seven days to write that up for you are you okay with that and you'd be like seven days i can wait 
for the feedback in order to reinforce whatever belief system I have about my game. I'm on the right? potty anyway, so you know, yeah. Yeah, so you're getting your smarties when you're on the potty. That's good. Exactly. Um, but yeah, so there there is that kind of, you know, there's loss aversion with Kickstarter. There's all sorts of stuff that we talk about today in terms of humane design, psychology of design. Um, and it's funny because Andy Jewett, who is the artist on uh, Ladder 29, speaking of Kickstarter, go take a look at that. If you like Tishu and you want to play without partners and you want to have a little easier game to teach other people, it's a climbing game uh, about firefighters and it's wonderful. Andy did the art. It's great. Uh, green Couch game, Jason Katarski. It's all kind of looping back. Uh, ben, ben Pinchback and Matt Riddle designed it. It's a good game. So check it out. Um, I don't think there's any kick. I don't think there's any stretch goals, so they're not kind of trying to be predatory. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Uh, but Andy was talking about in the comics industry how um, waiting till the Kickstarter is done and you get it in the <clears throat> final version is kind of analogous to waiting for the trade paperback copy of the collections of all the floppies, all the single issues, yeah. right? Yeah, and, and I think there's definitely that mentality as I got older, uh, I would rather wait for the trade. I, I do that when I binge watch as well, right? I'm, I'm a horrible binge watcher, uh, but I'll wait until the season is done. I just don't have time to wait on a weekly basis for a show. I'm not one to get caught up in the talk about the show. I just want to watch it and be done with it. Uh, that was an interesting question again that you asked. Like, um, I'm not the type of person that rereads or rewatches shows a lot or movies. I don't do that. No, I don't exactly know why. Do I know. Yeah. But a you've point. had that experience. The the thing is, with a legacy game, you could have a completely different experience. And you know, I think that 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 to a degree can hook you more than even a like when you're watching Vikings and you're going to do the entire season in one day. It's it's different going back and watching the whole season again and playing an entirely different game of Risk Legacy or Pandemic Legacy or, or what have you. It could go on a completely different tangent. Okay, you know where a lot of the, the high points, low points, you know, what you're going to reveal in each month in Pandemic Legacy are, are, are going to be. So you know some of the plot points, but the story is different. Yeah. And I think there are definitely some movies or series that lend themselves to that, like Lost or um, the new one that's out from, um, it's called Legion. It's based on a character that was designed by Bill Sankovich um, in uh, New Mutants and uh, X Factor and all those ones. Uh, but it's really, it's a really interesting show because you can't possibly catch everything. It's just so weird. But those types of shows, yeah, those I might watch again. But typically speaking, unless it's my kids that are making me watch a game, I don't watch anything over again. I just don't have the time to consume that much stuff. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> so um, I think we should probably wrap it up. It's 4.30. We've gone over time for our main show and included the after show in that. And besides that, Jesse's gone. So, I mean, it's just me and you. It's and we true. Can, it's, yeah. We can, like, you know talk forever so we're probably going to end it now um any parting thoughts before we go in terms of humane game design what would you recommend to people to be a little more humane about their design if they're first-time designers what do you think well i think a lot of the stuff that we've talked about can be used in a humane method and i think the best example like you said was sheriff of nottingham using that almost booster pack mentality within the game to create 
uh, a kind of a sense sensory experience, but as well kind of that that expectation of of something unexpected that's going to be there or something unexpected that you're going to do to the other players. All that's all that's great. And even when we're talking about LCGs, legacy games, okay, there are uh, there are things within those games that can be utilized in a humane way to be able to make the gameplay deeper, not just longer, not just make people keep on playing and coming back to the, to the table. So I think if we, we go back and, and talk and look at all the things we talked about today, I doubt that there's much that couldn't be used in a constructive way, just like the um, sitting down and playing uh, the quiet year or what have you. Again and again and again, you know, maybe that story was so good. It's got a beginning. It's got an ending. You've gone through an entire narrative arc. You've invested yourself in that story. It was an extremely deep experience, but you're not going to need another one of those tonight. Use that psychology to create a deep experience that the players will all enjoy together and be able to go home and maybe play again next week. Great. And uh, for me, I guess I just want to want people who are Kickstarter creators to think about how they're using Kickstarter in terms of trying to get more money out of people. It is by nature, um, you know, an ask. And I think a lot of people who are longtime supporters are very, very aware of you know, predatory practices that are used in kickstarting campaigns. So just be aware of that. Make sure that you're not um, building gameplay extension into your um, Kickstarter stretch goals, if possible, because people will be people will react negatively to that. They'll be very much um, negative to that. They don't like losing that, but they don't want to spend the money to get it. Uh, in the way that it's so cut out. It's so, I have to do this to get that. So just think about that kind of stuff. Also, if you're interested in psychology, I, I highly recommend looking into, you know, any of the areas that we talked about today, operant conditioning, loss aversion, uh, you know, social contract writing, any of those things will help you design really good games that don't have to respond in a non-humane way. So think about, think about, looking into how you play the games and how the games are played as opposed to how you sell the games and market them. Uh, because that's where this whole topic came up was predatory practices in selling the game. Okay, cool. Well, uh, I don't know what we're going to talk about next week, Dylan. Are you around next week? Uh, probably. I will you have, yes. Will yes, you have, a, will you yes have a flak jacket though? I, I probably won't. I'll, I'll probably just be wearing the same shirt that I'm wearing today. That's kind of gross. It is a little gross, but I won't wear it the entire week, I promise you. Oh, okay, so you'll actually change. I I'll see. change. I'll change okay. through the week, yeah. <clears throat> okay, but just your clothes, not you. Just don't go change. Okay, uh, and so I don't know. Daryl will be back from Gamma. He's at Unpub this weekend. If you guys are at Unpub in Baltimore, Maryland, please go say hi to Daryl. He's going to be wearing a baseball cap. I can guarantee that he's wearing a baseball cap. Yes. That's about it. He'll also have a beard and glasses and probably carting around 27-odd uh, board games with him to um, both pitch. And also, he's going to be obviously representing IDW, maybe. I don't know if he is or not, but probably. 
probably representing IDW at this at the spot. So please go check him out. Uh, give him a high five from his Canadian friends who are left back home in the cold. And we'll see you guys all next week. All right. Thanks very much for being on the feed.